0: John uh, Mangrum with us, a.k.a. the main Mangrum. Uh, John's our... That, that would be his wrestling name. Uh, John's our senior associate pastor here at ECC he has been here for about 20 years and started off as a youth minister here at the church. And uh, John is the guy on staff who I ask every time I have something break in my home or on my car. And he's really good at fixing problems like that. And uh, we're really thankful to have you here with us. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Josiah asked me to uh, speak on Esther because I actually preached on Esther last summer. So I don't know if some of you were here and heard that, but if so, you're going to give a, I was going to say a repeat, but maybe more positive way would be an encore presentation. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to speak on it again. And, and I'm happy to do that because Esther is one of my favorite books in the Bible. So it's kind of a full cool book. It's, it's unique at least. I mean, one thing you have to say about Esther, this is a different book than many other books in the Bible. One of only two named after a woman in the Bible. Um, It is one of the last books written in the Old Testament. And it's also a book that for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, nobody wrote a commentary on. Even people like John Calvin, who just wrote extensively, never wrote on Esther. Uh, Martin Luther actually called himself an enemy of the book of Esther. They didn't like it. He said there were so many what he called heathen unnaturalities in the book that he didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, so he just kind of stayed away from it. So it's, a, it's a different book. And before I talk about why I think it's a different book, in some ways it's different, I want to show you a little summary. I got this off YouTube. Uh, this is a summary of the Book of Esther that I found. that I thought was, did a better job than I could possibly do in seven minutes of just saying, here's what this book is about. So watch this woman do a good job.
1: takes place during the years of the Jewish exile, around 470 BC. Now the Jews had been defeated by Babylon, which meant they were exiled from their homeland and taken as slaves. But later, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. So now, the Jews found themselves under the rule of the Persian king, Xerxes. That's where our story begins. King Xerxes decided he was going to throw a party. And this wasn't your standard cookies and punch type of party. This party lasted for seven days, and included all manner of lavish feasting and drinking. Now on the last day, the king decided to show off his queen, who was very beautiful. But when he called for her to come to the feast, she refused. This greatly angered the king, and not only the king, but his counselors and noblemen as well, because they were thinking, if the queen treats the king this way, wives everywhere are going to start disrespecting their husbands. They're going to be mouthing off, refusing to change the baby. They're not going to cook the falafel for dinner. It's going to be chaos. So the king declared that the queen was no longer the queen, which meant that he needed to find a new one. Now, if you're an all-powerful male in the ancient world, what better way to find a new wife than to parade every beautiful single woman in the land for your palace? So that's what he did. Among the hundreds of women sent to the palace, was a girl named Esther. Esther was secretly a Jew, and she was also an orphan raised by her uncle Mordecai. And though she was essentially the lowest possible social class, the Lord was with Esther, and she was a beautiful and graceful woman. When she was brought to the palace, she found favor among all the king's staff, and ultimately the king himself, who chose her to be queen. uncle Mordecai was sitting at the city gate when he overheard two men plotting to kill the king. Mordecai quickly relayed this to Esther, who told the king, who promptly solved the problem. Even though he saved the king's life, Mordecai was never recognized for what he did, and some time later he found himself in trouble when a man named Haman rose to power. Haman was the king's second in command, and whenever Haman walked through the streets, Everyone was ordered to bow down before him. But Mordecai, being a Jew and a follower of God, refused to bow to Haman. When Haman found out about it, he was enraged. In fact, he was so enraged that he plotted to kill not only Mordecai, but every single Jew in the empire, women and children included. By Haman's influence, the king sent out a decree that ordered all Jews to be executed and their property taken. When Mordecai found out about it, he begged Esther to approach the king and ask him to change his mind. But Esther knew that if she were to approach the king without being summoned, she could, by law, be put to death. Esther was in torment, but finally, after much fasting and praying, she decided to approach the king, even if she should perish. When the king saw her standing before him, he loved her and invited her to speak. What do you wish, Esther? the king asked. Esther replied, I would ask that the king and Haman come to a feast that I shall prepare. The king was delighted, as was Haman, and together they feasted. (laughs) Toward the end of the meal, the king asked Esther, What is it that you wish? Anything you want will be granted to you, up to half my kingdom. Esther replied, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come to another feast that I will prepare, and there I will answer the king's question. Haman left the palace happy that day. But on his way home, he noticed Mordecai at the gate, and was reminded of Mordecai's refusal to bow to him. Haman's mood darkened. He decided to have a gallows built on which Mordecai would be hanged the following day. That night, The king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the Book of Records to be brought and read to him. When the account of Mordecai's mourning of the plot to kill the king was read, the king asked, what have we done to honor Mordecai for saving my life? Nothing, your majesty, replied the servant. So the king called for Haman, and when he arrived, the king asked, what should I do for someone I want to honor? Haman thought he was thinking of him, and he said, you should put your royal robes on him, and a crown, and let him ride your horse through the streets so that everyone will know that this is the man the king honors. The king thought that was a great idea, and he said, perfect. Go and get Mordecai, and do exactly what you have just said. In fact, you can be the one to the horse around. Soon after this, the day of Queen Esther's feast arrived. After they had finished eating, the king again asked Esther, What is it that you wish? Anything you want will be granted to you, up to half my kingdom. Esther replied, O king, if it please you, all I ask is that my life and the life of my people be spared. For I am a Jew, and it has been decreed that all Jews in the empire should be annihilated. When he heard this, the king was furious. Would do such a thing to my queen, he shouted. Haman, replied Esther. And furthermore, he has built a gallows to hang Mordecai, who once saved the king's life. The king replied, Then let Haman be hanged on it. And so it was. Haman was executed on the gallows. And a new decree was issued, saving the lives of the Jews. Esther and Mordecai were honored and spent the rest of their days serving the king.
0: So, pretty good summary. It does sanitize it a little bit, though. It um, makes it a little more of a good children's Sunday school lesson uh, than probably the real story. So, a few things I just want to add in here that didn't get put in there. Um, So, when the Persians conquer the Babylonians. So again, the Jews have been conquered earlier by the Babylonians. Persians come in and conquer them. Cyrus at the time is ruler of the Persians. He comes in and he decides that part of the way he wants to govern all this, this vast area that he controls is he wants to kind of keep the people in these various regions happy. And so part of what he does is he sends people back to their area. He supports, he wants to support them worshiping the gods they worship and all those things, keep them happy. So that he can kind of keep control of his kingdom. So he sends Jews back. He sends them back to Jerusalem, a, a large group of Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. Book of Esther appears about 70 years after that event occurs. So it's about 70 years later. So Nehemiah, Ezra are stories of these Jews going back under Cyrus, going back to Jerusalem. Esther about 70 years later, that's this story. What's interesting is 70 years later, so the biggest event of the biggest events ever in the history of Israel. We hear no mention in the book of Esther of Jerusalem, no mention of the temple, none of this, even though that's a pretty big deal going on. So these are the people that are still back here, still back in what was Babylonia and Mount Persia. They're still there, the Jews that are left behind, and it sounds like many of them are kind of hiding, covering up their identity because maybe it not the safest thing to be or to get the best support for them. Uh, and so, so we have Queen Vashti who decides she is not going to appear. She's tired of Xerxes. So Xerxes later, person came. Again, the most powerful man ever. Probably the most powerful man in the world at the time. This party talks about a seven-day party. It's actually about a six-month party. This is the last seven days where he went all out. But he's had a six-month party where he's invited rulers from again all over his kingdom, leaders from all over his kingdom to come together. And it was kind of his way of showing them how powerful he was and how wealthy he was to kind of gain their support make sure they stayed on his side. So for six months, they have this wild party that culminates in this seven days of just extravagance beyond imagination. And again, Vashti at this point doesn't want to come. She decides to stand him up and not appear, which is pretty bold move. Most powerful man in the world. Maybe one of the most powerful men ever to exist in the world. And she refuses to come and appear before him. So he decides, done with her got going to bring in the new queen. So again, this makes it pretty a beauty contest. We bring all these women in and find the most beautiful to be the next queen. Well, it wasn't quite that pain. You know, it's, it's let's go throughout this vast kingdom, find the most beautiful women, so send men out to find them. It's really not a choice. They say, you're one of them. You've got to be one of the kings. You're coming. You don't get to decide you're coming. So these women are found all over this kingdom. They're brought back to Xerxes. And for 12 months they are prepared. So 12 months of preparation, of beauty treatments, of training, of all these things, so that they could go one night before the king. This wasn't one night to do an interview. This was one night where they lost their virginity, where they had sex with the king. That's what this one night was. So one after another, they would go and present themselves to the king. Again, it sounds kind of pretty. Wasn't all that pretty of a story. Now, I'm not saying a lot of these women maybe didn't want this rule, didn't want this position. It may have been a position of great honor. They were given incredible wealth. But when they went to the king, they went when he summoned. And if he never summoned again, they were part of this harem. And they stayed part of this harem for the rest of their life. They could never return to family. They could never marry. It was a lush, well-cared-for, luxurious life. But it was a life of isolation. Kept away from others and kind of kept with each other in this harem for the rest of their life. So again, not necessarily this wonderful, pretty story but, um, it's made out to be here. Xerxes, again, pretty powerful guy, liked to brag about his power. Uh, here's one of the inscriptions that was found uh, about Xerxes, and here's what he said about himself. He said, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. Guy thought pretty well of himself. But what's interesting in the story is that we've got this, this incredible wealth and power of Xerxes doing anything he wants. And, and what kind of stands out when you read the book of Esther is why I think Martin Luther hated it It's because there's no mention of God anywhere. This is one of only two books in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned. The other is the Song of Songs, and there's some controversy there whether it actually is mentioned. Here, never. Never mentioned at all. Matter of fact, in this book, you won't find there's one occurrence where Esther, again, before she's going to approach Xerxes to plea for her people, um, she asks Mordecai, her uncle, to ask everybody he can to fast. So probably we can assume there she meant fasting and prayer. But there's really no mention anywhere in this book of prayer. There's no mention of angels. There's no mention of visions, of prophecies. There's no, none of these kind of things we often find in the Old Testament, none of it in there whatsoever. Matter of fact, we don't even find anything to mention about the law. They seem to completely ignore the dietary laws that Jews consider so importantly. They ignore Sabbath. You don't hear anything about it there. Everything that would make you think this is a book about God's people and this is a God's story is absent from the story. Nowhere in here you really can't even catch a hint of God anyplace other than that one little interaction with Mordecai and Esther about her going to talk to Xerxes. Everywhere else he seems to be gone. So you've got got Xerxes and his incredible power, people like Haman and their incredible power, and then you've got the Jewish people who seem to be completely alone and hiding and helpless, right? So the story line's kind of set. Power, nobody. Powerless over here. and, and we sometimes want to say, well, you know, when you're, if you're making up your flannel graph or your Sunday school class on this, you're going to make Esther the big the big heroine, right? Because she's the one who really saves the day. She saves the Jewish people because she finally goes to the Jersey and risks her life by asking for him to save her people. And she kind of works out this little plot to save them. But honestly, I'm not really sure that's what's going on here. Because she, she was pretty hesitant to go. It seems to be more guys saying, here you're going or. You're going to expose, as a matter of fact, you're going to get left behind if you don't go. Here's what Mordecai says to her in Esther chapter 4. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, that you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. But again, it's kind of like, Esther, you better do it or else you're going to be in big trouble if you don't do. That. But he also throws in there, there's a positive spin to it. This may be why God has placed you in this very position. This may be why all of this has come to be so that you, in this moment, can perform this task to save your people. So so remember that calling, consider that calling. But if you don't do it also, God's still gonna take care of his people. And matter of fact, you and your family may be in big trouble if you don't do it. So it's kind of a threat mixed in there too, right? It's not necessarily all can't wait to go save my people. It's going to save my own butt Well, I'm also at this. Um, yeah, and Mordecai, it sounds like, well, Mordecai, you know, he's the guy who, he won't bow to Haman, so that's a that's because he is just this follower of God. Well, there's really nothing in God's word that says he couldn't do that. He's bowed to the Lord all the time. That wasn't a strange thing. He wasn't being asked to worship him or anything. In fact, in this case, probably the reason that Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman was probably an issue of pride because Haman was an Agagite, Agagite. And uh, he was a descendant of King Agag, hated, the hated Amalekites, hated by the Jews. It was probably just a case where Haman's like, I mean, Mordecai's like, I'm not bound in this idiot. You're one of our archenemies, I'm not gonna do that. And in so doing, he risked his people because he was unwilling to do that. so it isn't necessarily a story of great heroes and great heroines. People who in some way stepped up, but not necessarily the people who were running to serve God. This isn't like a Daniel story, you know, where I am not going to bow down and I'm not going to worship false gods and I'm, I'm not going to cease to pray because I'm going to serve my God. This really isn't that kind of story. This is a kind of story of kind of reluctant servants of God. People who were kind of under the covers doing things that it really doesn't seem on the surface like, man, these people that really are following God and care about God, they're kind of take care of themselves often. It's the story here. It's a story where God is so very, very many voiced into us. And I think that's one of the important things about this story. One uh, of my jobs here at church is counseling. One of the things that I spent much of my ministry doing is counseling people. One thing I've learned over the years <coughs> in talking with people is a lot of times the important details are kind of in the what's not said the gaps. It's not always in the things that are said to me. Sometimes it's in the things that are left out, in the silences. Sometimes those are really important places to look. I think that's true in this book. In this book, it's looking in the gaps. It's looking in what's missing, that I think tells you a lot. Because this is a pretty remarkable story. This is, a, this is a story about a lot of things falling into place and a lot of details happening. That again, God's not mentioned. I think intentionally in this story, left out, kind of remind us that even when it seems like God's not there, it's what's going on here. Because if you look at this story, some pretty strange things, right? In fact, I've read before that a coincidence is simply a miracle where God chooses to remain anonymous. That's what this story is. This is one of those kind of stories. Because you look through some of the, the little details of this story, it just so happens. So it just so happens that Queen Vashti, who knows Xerxes, knows what a powerful man this is. A man who's willing just on a whim to wipe out a whole race of people. This is a powerful man, and this is a man who doesn't always think about his actions. And Queen Vashti, who knows him well, and knows his power, just so happens she decides on this day not to appear before him. I mean, Esther's afraid to even go appear before him because she's going to be killed because she wasn't summoned. Vashti refuses to even appear before him. That's a pretty big deal. And she seems kind of to be in a mood and decide she's not going to be that. it. That's a pretty big thing to not do. Think about some of the other it just so happens moments. So so think with me. In this story, even though know what you just heard, what are some of the little coincidences that kind of fall into place to make this story? Any of them? What's the end up? Or the day after and then Yeah, it's Yeah. Because it just so happens to not be able to sleep and has the book of records read to him, which doesn't sound like an exciting book to have read to you. <laughs> so he can't sleep, and maybe that's why he had it read to him so he can fall asleep. So he had to bring in the book of records, and it just so happens to fall open to the page where it tells the story of Mordecai and how he had, you know, turned in this plot that, that saved verse life. Yeah, that's a pretty big just so happens. What else? What else just so happens in He's the one who, again, I mean, who is Mordecai? I mean, why is this guy floating around? Why does he even hear this plot? I mean, that's a pretty big deal. You're plotting to kill Zerpsey, right? Pretty big deal. Uh, I would think you're hiding that from everybody. And Mordecai just happens to be hanging around and hears this thing. Mordecai also happens to be the same guy, strangely enough, who Haman hates, who Haman is making this big plot to get because he hates this guy so bad and then wants to kill all the people. What else? What just so happens? Xerxes picked Esther. Xerxes picked Esther, right. Out of the thousands of women that he could have chosen, he chooses this one woman who happens to be the hidden Jew mm-hmm. among all these people. Lots yeah. of just so happens in the story. And I think that's important. Yeah? Why did they not have each Uh, They just didn't reveal it at the time. Not, I mean, Mordecai told her to hide it and not tell him yeah, sure at that point, I mean, we're talking. Sometimes we read the Bible, we think of it like, well, oh, that was next week. We're talking, you know, hundreds of years sometimes of things are going on. So this time, even from the time the Persians took over now, we're talking seventy years. So I imagine the Jews have pretty well woven their way into society, and I and I would also imagine the Jews who stayed behind and didn't go back to Jerusalem during those seventy years, probably if some of them were the ones who were pretty well established and wanted to kind of weave themselves in. They were the ones who probably didn't want to stand out they didn't want to go home. They were kind of happy where they were. Yeah. Anything else? So, so look at this story, all that just so happens, all the things that just have to fall in place for this to, to kind of work together. And, and I think that's one of the important parts of the story that gets missed a lot of times. This is not really a story about Esther. It's called Esther. But I don't think it's really a story about Esther. I think this is a story about God. But it's a story about God in the way that God often acts, in the way God often works. Is God working through very ordinary circumstances, through things that oftentimes don't even appear as him accomplishing his purposes and doing his will? But when you step back and you look at the story, this is a God story. All these little things just so happen to fall into place in just the right way, so that this story of saving his people could happen in a way that was miraculous. Even though when you looked at every little event, there's nothing miraculous going on, right? uh, Pretty remarkable story. I think Book of Esther reminds us of the providence of God. That's a that's a doctrinal term that doesn't get used a lot anymore, providence. You don't hear a lot about that when you're in Sunday school and in, in church anymore. Providence, the Westminster shorter catechism, says this about it. God works his providence. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. So theologians talk about, when they talk about providence, about two different things. Providence, they say, would be God's act of preserving his creation. It means he not only created everything, but he's actively involved in the preserving of it and the sustaining of it and the working out the details of things. He didn't create and walk away. He's still in it. He's still active in it. He's still a part of caring for and moving along his creation. So that's to preserve it. But the other part they talk about is this part called divine concurrence. And divine concurrence is this, it's the action which God works out his will through the actions of human beings in a way that doesn't somehow take away their free will. You get that? God works out his will through people like us and we still are free choosing people. Divine concurrence. And it's confusing, how does that work? So how does God do what he wants to do through people like us, through people like in this story, through people even like Xerxes and Mordecai and Esther. He works out his will in such a way that he tells his perfect story. But they're still choosing people. They're still fully responsible for their choices. Whether they do good or bad, it's still all theirs. But somehow in it, he completely, perfectly works out his will. So some examples of that in Scripture. An example would be like um, Joseph, when his brothers you know, sell him into slavery. When he was doing that. Joseph says, well, you, you know, you meant it for evil. But God meant that very same act. And he's holding them responsible for the evil. They made evil choices. <laughs> sell their brother into slavery. But says God also meant that for good. That very same act that you're responsible for, you're responsible for doing bad. That was also an act. And he even says, not that God took what already happened and turned it into good. He's saying God meant it for good before it happened. Somehow God was in this thing and this was part of his perfect plan. Acts chapter 2, Peter talks about the fact that the crucifixion was absolutely the responsibility lays it squarely on the shoulders of those who crucified Jesus. It was an evil act. And yet, in Acts chapter 2, he also says, and yet God used that very same act, he foreordained it. He knew it, planned ahead. It was part of his good story and his good purposes to accomplish his good plan. How in the world do those people how in the world can we be choosing people, making choices, sometimes even for evil purposes? So a Xerxes and a Haman, the story of some incredibly powerful people doing things out of this selfishness, out of the desire to exert their power, uh, out of promoting themselves. They think that they're in charge of the story. But the story of Esther is really a story of God's in control all along. Nothing they could do, nothing they could say. None of their evil could get in the way of God telling a good story. A matter of fact, God didn't even miss a beat. He just wrote that right into the story. Yet they're still responsible for all the evil. It's all theirs that all rests on their shoulders. It was their choice. I don't really fully get it. It is a mystery in Scripture to thing divine mind. It's probably why you don't hear a lot of sermons preached on it. Because it makes your head spin up a little bit. How in the world does this work? Uh, here's a quote from uh, theologian Michael Horton. He says that scripture holds humans responsible for their own actions, and yet affirms God's sovereignty. So too must we. These two truths are never resolved in scripture, but held together, acknowledging their mystery. And there's just some things we don't fully really understand. This is one of them. Scripture doesn't really fully do this the nature of this question. It simply says, human beings do choose, human beings are responsible for their choices, and that God is powerfully and sovereignly working out his good plan of our choices are going to get in the way of it. In fact, they're not only really not going to get in the way of it, that's going to use them, incorporate them, work them into a good story because of the end. One of the things I think often when I <coughs> with people hearing them tell their life stories. Hearing them tell about events in their life that have been painful and hard and sometimes people don't too them. There are many times I sit and listen to a story and I think people would like me to, would like me to help them uh, push that story away, crush it, get rid of it. If, if I had a big eraser, they would beg me to come in and erase that story from their life. And, and I often tell people, it would be perverse for me to say that I don't want to. Some of the some of the harm I hear done to people, to say that I'm glad that's there, I want that to be in your life, of course you want harm to people to happen to people, there's nothing good about that. So there's a part, you want to say, Yes, I wish I could erase that for you. And I, I say with a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to erase things from their life, trying to deny them push them away, pretend they're just not part of their story. But one of the things I often say to people is, my other the other side of that is, if I could help you erase that, my concern is, I'd like the person sitting in front of me a lot of times. I'm, I'm happy for the person who I'm talking to, to be here and be the person they are. I don't know who you are if I erase that from your story. I don't know who's left. Now, I hate that event I hate the eel, I hate the arm. But I don't know you apart from that story, And I don't have that choice anyways. I can't erase anyways. So one of the things I often say is that it's interesting to me in Scripture how God never calls those things good. He never affirms them. He calls them what they are, evil. Call them bad. Yet at the same time, God, who could erase, chooses not to. What God chooses to do is to redeem. And it's a very different word. He doesn't erase. He takes even those things meant for evil. And he doesn't let evil win. I sit sometimes in front of people, I hear a story. I've heard stories told by people <laughs> that honestly, um, they are the stuff of movies and books, and they are just unbelievable stories that people have told the things that they through. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've learned again and again over the years as a pastor is um, we would all be amazed to hear the true stories of the people around us. And we think those are rare stories. They're not so rare, the stuff of the movies. But they're actually kind of life. They're all around us all the time. They're around us in this church. Around us anywhere you go on campus. Anywhere you go. There are a lot of stories of a lot of evil and a lot of harm and a lot of hurt in this whole Absolutely. But they talk to people. One of the things I'm often telling them is uh, the cool thing is that we also have a God who is not at all slowed down by that. Not at all hindered by it. Who will still tell a good story. And many times the in front of me are great that. that I've been talking to someone and i think, your story is a story where Satan should have won. Your story is a story where evil should be the victor. Absolutely. It is a story where darkness seems to dominate. And yet I'm sitting with someone where that's absolutely not the case. Darkness did not win. Evil was not the victor. Again, but everything in that story tells me that's the way it should be, right? That makes sense. But so often it's not the case. Where where God stepping in in a moment and taking all that darkness and can move it towards life and change the whole trajectory of the story. It doesn't call it, mean that that was good. It doesn't mean we wish it for something. It doesn't mean you would say, oh, I'm glad that happened to you. It just means it doesn't look God never ending. No matter what we think. And and that's one of the things when I look at the book of Esther, I, I come away with it. I come away reminded of book of Esther, is that when we look around and it seems sometimes that evil is winning and, and things are all going wrong and where in the world is God? God isn't hindered by of that. God sometimes doesn't stand out in remarkable, miraculous ways. and He's still there. And he's still active. And many times we have to wait and look back at the story and see where he's in the present. A lot of times, right now in the moment, you look at the story of Esther and every one of those little moments Probably look like nothing more than coincidence, right? But you weave them all together, and they are absolutely the story of a powerful God who is doing a powerful work, working towards a good end. Um, I, think, I think we have to look hard at our own lives sometimes to find that. Pay attention. To In fact, I, I tell people all the time: I think we ought to be good uh, story detectives. We ought to be people who look hard at our own lives and look and say, "Where do I see God's presence?" Where do I see his activity? Where do I see his name? Esther calls me to do that, right? you are got to read the book of Esther and after, you want to find God in this story. You've got to pay attention to the story. You've got to look in the gaps. You've got to look, stand back, and look at the whole story. And absolutely, you see God and want to glorify him. And the people of Israel glorified God ever since because of those events. Sometimes we have to be good detectives look in the gaps, even in our own lives, and say, where's is, where is the God story now? Sometimes I get lost in the evil story, the darkness story. And, it, and I start treating it like it's the only story being told. And I'm saying, sometimes it's huge. It's harder to look past it. But oftentimes it's what I try to do with people. I think it's what we can do with each other sometimes, what we're called to do with people. But sometimes help each other be people who open their eyes and look around and say, but it's got a present and after the right here." Again, the thing you have to be careful about, want to warn strongly. Be careful about saying to somebody, yeah, well, God's going to use that for good. So, someone you love just died, well, you know, God's going to bring good out of that thing. Well, that's say, Well, don't do that. You know, not say <coughs> that's horrible and that's sad and that's hard and that's ugly. Because it is. Death is Absolutely a violation of what's good. And so, call it ugly, ugly also be people who are willing to step back and sometimes say, "Well, oh, I like, if you see God working even in the midst of other people, you see God present and active and God doing something. I've seen it in my life. I can sometimes when I sit and listen to you and watch you, I can see it in your life. Sometimes I see people who see it and what's coming out of you despite quite dark. It tells me something God's I was there and I was present I my active. I talked to a woman one time, to, uh, Again, telling her story, the stuff that people write books about. It was just a story of horrible abuse uh, by men throughout her life. Horrible, horrible abuse. And, uh, and yet, I'm sitting with this woman who was gentle, kind, loving, a woman who you know, loved her children and loved her husband well. And I'm like, how in the world did that woman know that story? I'm going talk to someone who's hard, mean. Self-protective. Why is it, that woman, that person? And as she told her story, she told me the story of one person in her life. One person, well, I bet if I went back and talked to that person and I said to them, you know what? You were a transitional point in that person's life. God through you did a major work to change the trajectory trajectory of that woman's life. I bet they had no clue. I bet they would say, I think I did That I was kind I of normal kind of stuff. He wasn't that woman, tell her story. That man gave her hope in the end of the world. And, and he wasn't really probably that significant from his point of view. From anybody else standing around, probably not significant. But for some reason, that man was at the right point, in the right time, through God's Spirit, God used us to of hope in her life that there could be something with her. And he began hoping for something. What a little, in this case, Couple of months of life. A couple of interactions were enough to change this whole trajectory, move in direction. I hear stories like that and it's it hopeful to me. When Mordecai when says to Esther, maybe for such a time as this, maybe God has put you here for just such a time as this. Esther, not because you're necessarily the best follower of God, not because you have it all together, not because you're so wonderful and remarkable. This isn't an Esther story. He's saying this is a God story. Maybe... Right now, God is going to use you to accomplish an important part of this story. We all get to be that. Not because we're so wonderful and remarkable and we do it all right and have it all together. Because if we are willing, when we feel God calling us, if we are willing to step into those moments where we see an opportunity to to serve God, to follow God, to obey God, to share His love, to be an example of Himself, if in those moments we step... Stories like this are encouraging to me. Because they say, you know, even those moments, major life changing events, I may not be perfect, I may not have it all together. You know what? I've never seen a miracle personally, Some I call a miracle. I've never heard this audible voice of God. I've had people tell me they have, and I believe it. I've not. Uh, I'm not somebody who's, again, miraculous, supernatural. You know, I think I've seen Esther kind of miracles. I've not seen the kind that some people talk about. I'd like to. That'd be kind of cool. I, remember when I was in a few years ago. I talked to a man. I really respect him. He was doing <laughs> some miracles. And I was like, I want some of those. I want to see some of those. That's not giving me. i have not. I'm not having. Them. But when I look at my life, and when I look at the lives of others, what I see is God doing miraculous right work. Oftentimes, through very ordinary. And and I always want to more. Dan mentioned it this morning in the sermon that. Sometimes we get caught up in thinking that God is only present when there's a supernatural. That's the only way God works. And I want to say, God is doing a certain actual work in the ordinary. Many times, I said, I do. I go pray with people in the hospital all the time. So I go a regular I and people in the middle of health crisis. And again, when I pray for them, I'm not always praying, I, I always have praying. pretty back that God will do a miracle and heal them. But I'm also praying for God, I hope you will use the skills of these doctors, and these nurses, and these medications, and these researchers to do this good work of healing. And you know what? One isn't less a miracle than the other. God works through the ordinary, God works through the miraculous. God works. What is miraculous is that in this fallen world with fallen people like us, God continues to tell this good story and the battle. That's the miracle. That's the story of Esther. So when you when you look at the story of Esther, don't get so lost in Esther and Mordecai. Look at the gaps. Look for God, and see if you can find him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way that you are present here with us. For the remarkable and miraculous way that you have sent your spirit to be with us, to be in us, to shape and use us as your people, as your community. Father, I pray that we would be people who are always looking for you what you're doing and what you're up to and we'd be quick to join you. because Father what you do is just remarkable Amazing. and you're blessed